0: Our scripture this morning is from Psalms 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And also from Mark 15, starting at verse 33 through verse 46. At noon, the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs, while other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, so as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid.
1: Greetings to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a joy it is to be back together to hear a flute and hear a piano, to, to see faces in front of me, uh, to, to preach to more than just Ron. I'm sure it's nice for Ron, too. But so glad to be back in time for Holy Week and time for Easter. Yeah, today, as we continue, we continue with the account of Jesus' crucifixion, And uh, as I mentioned last week, Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion is particularly stark. There's no good words uh, from a good thief on the cross. None of Jesus' followers are near him. We read that they watch at a distance. And the final words we hear from Jesus' lips are some of, I believe, the most haunting words in all of Scripture. It's dark. It's, It's literally dark because we read that the last three hours of Jesus' life are in darkness. But I, but I want to encourage you to hang with me. I want to tell you what I tell sometimes my kids. It's going to be hard, but we're going to get through it. It's going to be worth it. Not just because the only path to the joy of Easter Sunday is through the pain of Good Friday, but even in the amidst, amidst the, this dark and haunting scene, we have some powerful, powerful signs of hope. So hang with me here this morning. We're Mark 15, starting at verse 33. We read last week that Jesus was hung up on a cross at Golgotha at 9 in the morning. It's now noon, so Jesus has been there for three hours. And darkness comes over the land. We have, really have no idea what caused this darkness in the middle of the day, but it certainly adds to the ominous setting. Darkness could signify a number of things in the Bible. Darkness was a sign of God's judgment. In the Old Testament, right before the Israelites are freed from slavery in Egypt, we read that darkness sets over the land for three days. And darkness is also associated with mourning. We, we, uh, and we read in this passage that, that darkness comes over the whole land. So it's almost as if we get this sense that all of creation is experiencing the darkness that's happening here uh, on Golgotha at the cross. That creation itself is mourning. That That creation recognizes something very dark is happening. I remember years ago having a conversation with a woman I knew who had been caring for her aunt at her house and whose health was failing and was nearing the end of the life. And the woman recounted to me at the moment of her aunt's death that a a pet bird in the house broke out into song, Uh, this beautiful song that she had never heard the bird sing before, I think had no idea where the bird had learned it. And if I remember correctly, did not hear that song after that moment it was like uh, the bird was aware uh, of what was happening and choosing to mark this solemn moment with the song. When Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today, the crowd recognized and was hailing Jesus as king, and the religious leaders told Jesus to make them stop. And Jesus responded, "If, if they don't cry out, the rocks will. It's as if... Jesus' closest followers are not there to stand, witness, and mourn at the cross. Therefore, creation will step in and play that role. Verse 34, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to begin this morning by just by taking a careful look at these words, what's known as which are known as the Jesus cry of abandonment from the cross, but first of all, I just want to sit with these words for a second and hear them in their most plain sense. "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you hear? Don't confuse these words that Jesus is saying, like the people standing near him. Do they get confused? They think He's calling for Elijah. That's not what he was doing. Hear these words in their plainest sense. It's a loud, it is a bewildered, it is a tormented, it is a God-forsaken cry. It's a cry of utter abandonment. As we've been following Jesus this last week of his earthly life, we've seen him in psychological anguish at Gethsemane as he prays. We've seen him rejected and scorned by Israel, by his own people. We've seen him used as a political pawn by Pilate, which then leads to this gross miscarriage of justice. We've seen him betrayed by one disciple, denied by another, and abandoned by all his disciples. He's been brutally flogged, beaten, and spit on by Roman soldiers. And in a public and shameful spectacle, he has been hung up, likely naked on a cross, where the onslaught of verbal abuse continues. So it's been six hours now since Jesus was placed on the cross, and amidst this darkness, Jesus now feels abandoned by the Father. He feels God-forsaken, and it's too much. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's begin this, by this word, forsake. This word, it literally means to quit, to leave, to abandon, to desert. So Jesus is asking the Father, why have you deserted me? Why have you abandoned me? Think with me for a second on a time in your life when you have experienced suffering, okay? Oftentimes when something horrible happens to a person, some kind of tragedy, there are, there are two types of affliction that are, are typically present, often present. There is the the, the affliction and pain that, of the cause of the suffering, so you know, perhaps it's a death, a bitter disappointment, some kind of deep and painful loss, okay? So there's that pain. But then very often, what accompanies that affliction is the affliction of isolation. It's this feeling that one is alone in one's pain, and and there's good reason for that. The fact is, is that no one can fully understand another's suffering. You are, in at least some sense, alone. Even, for example, uh, you read about it in in, in examples of marriage, where a married couple has the tragedy of losing a child. And, of course, the, the married couple shares that grief but they also grieve in their own ways. They can also feel, in a sense, isolated in their grief. Great suffering has a way of cutting us off from others. Tragedy not only, uh, tragedy not only inflicts, it isolates. And that isolation is, as, as I heard one person put it, that isolation is the suffering within the suffering, the suffering within the suffering. So there's the suffering that results from the initial tragedy, but then there's the suffering from a sense of desolation and abandonment that follows the tragedy. So the absolute worst of humanity has been thrown at Jesus in terms of suffering, physical suffering, psychological suffering, emotional suffering, but throughout it all, Jesus has has held it together because he was not alone, because he trusted in the Father, and he. Seem to feel the Father's presence with him, but now on the cross, at this moment, Jesus feels cut off from the Father. He feels forsaken by the Father. He feels abandoned by the Father, and the, Father, and the utter horror of that feeling sets in. Jesus says, "Why? Why?" Notice Jesus is asking a question. Why is this happening? And so, what is the purpose of this, okay? Because there's often two questions that are asked in the midst of suffering, okay? There's, where is God in this, and why is this happening? Where is God, and why is this happening? And that's, if you notice, that's exactly what Jesus is asking. Where are you, God? So, I don't feel your presence. I don't hear your voice. I don't sense you're with me. Where are you, and why? why is this happening? And we, we ask the question, why usually? Because life has thrown something at us that we never saw coming. We have expectations for how life is going to go. And all of a sudden, something comes along and there's this wrenching alteration of expectations of life. And we say, why God? You know, think about it. We don't typically ask this question, why God is this happening when things are going great in our life, when they're going when they're going as we hoped and as we planned. No, we, the, the question why emerges when it's very hard to make sense out of what's happening. When what's happening seems to serve no larger purpose. And we know from our study of Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane that he knew this cup that he was about to drink was bitter. He had no illusions that this was going to be easy. Which is why it drives him to the Father to ask to take the cup. And up to this point, as horrible as everything we have witnessed done to Jesus has been, Jesus doesn't seem shocked by the horrors of crucifixion and all that entails. It's the horror of being separated from his Abba that leads to this mournful cry of abandonment from the cross. I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's a darker moment in all of Scripture In this moment in Mark's Gospel. Here's what's interesting about this scene. In this dark moment, in this cry of abandonment, over time many people have found a huge amount of comfort in this cry. Last week of July 1943 during World War II, the British Air Force began a sustained bombing campaign of the city of Hamburg, Germany that lasted eight days. That was at the time, the heaviest aerial assault in the history of of, of warfare. Basically wiped out the city, okay? Physically, but also it it killed almost 40,000 civilians. It wounded 180,000. The code name for this assault was Gomorrah, right? After the Canaanite cities from the Old Testament, you can kind of imagine why it was codenamed Sodom and Gomorrah, if you know that story. And one of the people present at that battle was a young German soldier named Jürgen Moltke. And Moltmann was at his post at an anti-aircraft battery when right beside him, his friend is killed. And years later, he wrote about this experience. That night, I cried out to God for the first time, my God, where are you? And the question, why am I not dead too, has haunted me ever since. He then moves, he's eventually captured, he moves to an allied prison camp. Moltmann now, at this point, despairing, alone, he's in this intense place of darkness, and now he's confronted with pictures of the Nazi concentration camps at Bergen-Belsen and Auschwitz. And the horrors and the suffering, not only of his own life, but entire the world, is more than you could ever imagine. And amidst that horror, amidst that darkness, an army chaplain gives Moltmann a Bible, and he admits, I didn't really understand much of it. But then he came to the crucifixion account in Mark. And he found himself captivated by the cry of abandonment from the cross. Let me put up that slide. All right, this is Moltman here. When I read Jesus' death cry, my God, why have you forsaken me? I knew with certainty this is someone who understands me. I began to understand the assailed Christ because I felt he understood me. This was the divine brother in distress. See, Moltman, when he came to this scene in Mark, he realized that in his most intense darkness, his most intense suffering and confusion, this was a God who understood him. This was a God who got him. He realized that this God was not this indifferent God, this really detached God, aloof from the suffering of his creatures. No, this was a God who actually chose himself to most fully reveal himself in suffering. And as we'll get to, we'll get to here at, towards the end, one of the really fascinating things about this scene is that the centurion's confession that Jesus is the son of God. So the centurion, he's, he's across from Jesus, he looks up and in his flash, he's gonna get what no other human in Mark's gospel gets. This is the son of God. And when, is this, when, is this, when does the curtain drop? When does the penny drop for the centurion? It's, is it in Jesus' triumph? No, it's revealed in Jesus' suffering and his abandonment on the cross. God most fully reveals himself in Christ in suffering and weakness. Meaning, we don't just serve a God who's all-knowing and all-powerful. I'm really glad we do serve a God who's like that. But I can't relate to those things. I don't know what omnipotence and omniscience feels like. You, you know what's, Most of you know what suffering's like. And I'm so glad we serve a suffering God. Another German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, will write from his prison cell, only a suffering God can help. Because we profess that God is present in the crucified Christ, we profess that Christ is personally involved in human sorrow and suffering. A God who suffers is a God who's in solidarity with his creatures who suffer. We have not just a Savior and a Lord in Jesus. We have, I love this, a divine brother in distress who draws close to us in suffering, who's in solidarity with all those who suffer because the divine brother knows what suffering's like. The physical pain, the psychological pain, the emotional pain, the shame, the abandonment, the doubt, you name whatever you've experienced, Jesus has experienced it. Which means, listen to this, in your own suffering, you at least have one person who gets you. You've got a divine brother in distress, who fully gets you, and who stands in solidarity with you. These words that Jesus' spoke, as you probably noticed, he's quoting Psalm 22, okay? It's interesting, this psalm is all over this crucifixion account. If you go, go if you've got your cross references in your Bible, if you want to go back later, look at all the references to Psalm 22, what, uh, what Ellen read earlier. And just think about... These words from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. Would you pray those words? Can you get yourself to say those words to God? The psalmist does. Jesus does. At the the dark moment when Jesus is cut off from his Abba, in a ways, number four, what does he do? Almost instinctually, reflexively, he reaches for biblically based prayer. These are the words that Jesus reaches for. He reaches. Jesus knows his, his scripture, his Old Testament, and the words on this cross, in this abandonment, the words that come to him are words of lament and sorrow. It it shouldn't it should surprise us. Jesus is constantly quoting scripture. He quotes scripture to the devil. He quotes scripture to everyone. And now on the cross, he quotes scripture. Because those are the words that give words to his experience. See, one of the other things about suffering that people will talk about is that suffering can actually strip you of your language. Suffering can actually make you almost feel mute because you don't know how to describe what you're feeling. Like that's why often after a deep, deep tragedy, someone will look at you and say, I don't know what to say. And what they mean is I literally don't know what to say. I don't have the words to articulate what I'm feeling. And one of the things scripture does is, in particular the Psalms, is it gives us words to express what we're feeling because the Psalms cover the entire spectrum of human emotion. The Psalms talk about affection for God and love for God and trust for God and intimacy God. The Psalms also talk about hatred for your enemy and anxiety and worry and rage. And feeling abandoned by God. If you've read the Psalms, I'm almost guaranteed you've reached a point and you're like, did I just read that? I think I just read that, but surely that's not in the Bible. I'm glad that's in the Bible because the Bible reflects real life. The Psalms give us permission to say things that we maybe don't even think we can say to God. They give us words when suffering has made us mute couple things here. Jesus' mournful, even kind of scary prayer from the cross gives us permission to pour out our tears and our pain and our complaint and our grief and our doubts and even our anger at God. And that's important. I've said this before. We need to be reminded that we can honestly pour ourselves out to God. Secondly, as followers of Jesus, I want to be like Jesus where I draw from the deep well of Scripture. I want to be like Jesus, where in the darkest moments, as I'm reaching for something, what I'm going to reach for is scripture. See, we spend, all of us, way too much time drawing from the shallow wells around us. We spend way too much time drawing from the shallow wells of social media and self-help books and television and news and internet and podcasts and all those other things that aren't necessarily bad, but let's be honest, most of them are shallow wells. And we spend so little time drawing from the deep well of scripture. And we wonder why these other things don't quench our thirst. We spend so much time in them, we saturate our, thing, our mind with the things of the world. And when life happens and the darkness happens, what do we have to pull from? A lot of fluff and a lot of junk. No, I wanna be like Jesus. I wanna saturate myself and my life and my mind in scripture i want to do it on a daily basis and you're probably saying okay i don't know know, how do i do that we got 20 of us right now we're going through the new testament right now join us it's great i've had two interactions with people this week who were in the same part of hebrews and we were able to interact in a way that we wouldn't have if we were not going through the new testament together join us it's not too late shoot mindy an email we're going to be in matthew here soon we'll be in james next week join us Make that a part of your daily life. Parents, make memorizing scripture a routine with your children. Help your children build that deep reservoir by memorizing psalms with them that your children can then have in the moments of life they have those to draw from. I, before I had kids, I had memorized almost zero scripture. I've now memorized quite a bit just because of my kids because that's the great thing as a parent. As you're having your kid memorize it, You're memorizing, right? And now you have that to draw from. Saturate your life and your home in Scripture. There's two more words we need to look at. From the cross, the first words of this cry are, my God, my God. So Jesus is bewildered, he's forsaken, but here's what you need to see. Jesus does not let God go. Jesus refuses to let God go. Through the anguish and the sorrow and the lament, Jesus still says, my God. Okay? Jesus is not directing this prayer into some kind of void, some kind of hopeless void where who knows who's going to hear it. No, 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 no. Jesus directs it to my God. Jesus' cry is a mournful cry. It's a sorrowful cry. It's a haunting cry, but it's also a defiant cry. It's a cry that says, I will not let you go. Even in my darkest hour, even in my utter abandonment, I will not let you go. You are still my God. What do you do in life when you're overwhelmed by inconsolable grief, when you feel isolated from humans and even from God, when you feel bewildered by what is happening? Like, let's be honest, it's the rare person who does not experience that at some point in their lives. And we are understandably tempted to give up faith in God, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus, in his mournful cry, even his suffering, says, I will not let you go. As I read, one person pointed out, if you've got small children, you know those children don't hesitate to make their complaints known to you. Your parents know this all too well. Your children will tell you when something's not right. Your children don't, when they're young, they don't hold back their pain in secrecy. They make it known to their parents. It's only when a child has been abused that they then try to hold in that pain. Because at that point, the child has lost faith that the parent cares, and they will not, stop to voice that. Jesus' cry of despair to the Father is not a sign he lost his faith. It's a sign that he tenaciously holds on to it right to the very end, right to the last breath, he trusts the Father. I talked about last week, what I've been so moved as we've moved this account is that every step of the way, Jesus chooses to trust the Father. I will not let you go. With another loud cry, we don't hear the words from this one. Jesus breathes his last. At this point, it looks, we didn't know this story so well, it looks like a tragic ending. It looks like the the religious leaders were right. No God is going to send a Messiah and then have that Messiah die on a cross. But two things happen after Jesus' death. That both show us that one, God has not abandoned Jesus, and that this is not just a tragic death. That this is a death of divine fulfillment and revelation. The first is the tearing of the curtain in the temple. There would have been two curtains in the temple at the time. There would have been one before the court of Israel, and then there would have been one that we think of more before the holy of holies. This is this holy of holies is this place that the Israelites believed contained the very presence of God. And so we, have, we don't know which one of these curtains was torn. Mark doesn't tell us. Mark actually doesn't tell us a whole lot about what this means, okay? We, we, we've interpreted this lots. We've spent a lot of time interpreting it. Mark doesn't tell us a lot. But it seems like at least two things are clear here. One, this is the, a divine act, okay? This tearing of the curtain is not gonna be made possible by humans, this huge curtain. Two, it's, there's the way opening up for Jews and Gentiles into God's presence, As one person put it, it, the curtain being torn is not so much so that people can get in there, it's so that God can get out. At this death of Jesus, the barrier between God and humanity is being removed. God's presence isn't going to be limited to this tiny little room in his temple. The second thing that happens, the second sign is this, which I mentioned earlier, the centurion. He's watching all this happen, and all of a sudden he says, surely this man was the son of God. So this this doesn't shock me, but we need to do a little bit of work to realize this is a shocking statement. You and I, when we started this gospel almost a year ago, we were told very early at the beginning of the story who Jesus was, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. We were tipped off right at the beginning, okay? And then we got, we were privy to Jesus' baptism. Nobody else was. We were there when the heavens ripped Get so, same word as the temple, interesting connection, okay? The temple curtain tears, the, the heavens are ripped open at Jesus' baptism. And what happened? God confirms that Jesus is his son. But nobody else has recognized that, okay? All this ministry, all this time, nobody else has recognized it, not Jesus' disciples, not a fellow Jew. Now this guy gets it. A Gentile army officer, an enemy of Jesus, the captain of an execution squad, he's the first person to get it. This battle-hardened thug for whom killing someone on the cross is just another day at the office, all of a sudden he receives a revelation. And he sees who Jesus as he really is, the son of God. At the end of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion, I think most of you know the scene, they're standing in front of, the great and powerful Oz. And there's fire, and there's a booming voice that says, do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. You know this scene? Okay, <laughs> good. A lot of my movie references, but I was thinking that's pretty safe. And then the lion and the tin man, and the, they're all shaking in their boots, and then Toto, of course, goes over, and he pulls back the curtain. And when the curtains pull back, it's this kind of sad scene, this man pulling all these levers, and he's making the smoke and fire, and he's using the speaker to amplify his voice. Pay not attention to the man behind the curtain. At the cross, at Jesus' moment of suffering and death and humiliation, of seeming defeat, another curtain is pulled back, another curtain is lifted. And Jesus is seen for who he really is, the Son of God. See, see, throughout Mark's gospel, if you picked up, Jesus is constantly stifling speculation about who he is. Very early, an impure spirit says, "You're the holy one of God." He tells him, "Shut up!" Basically, same thing happened with the demons. The demons who know who Jesus is, shut up. A man with leprosy wants to go tell everyone. Jesus says, "No." Again and again, he's got to tamp down speculation about who he is. But we're like, "Why are you doing this, Jesus?" Well, there's other, there's other reasons. But look, look at this is one of them. These announcements were premature. It's not until this moment on the cross that a person is going to be able to rightly understand who Jesus is and what it means to be the Son of God. See, the cross is a moment of revelation. It's the moment that the curtains pull back and finally we can see Jesus for who he really is. And that's what the centurion does. And behind this curtain is not some sad, small, weak man pulling levers, but an all-loving God who in lowliness and humiliation of the cross demonstrated his power. Pay attention to the God-man on the cross. Pay attention to the God who chooses to most fully reveal God's self, not through smoke and fire, but on a cross. The title Son of God in the centurion's mind belongs to the emperor of Rome. That's who you pledge allegiance to. That's who the Son of God is someone with vast armies and military might and imperial power all at his fingertip. But yet, the centurion bestows the title on this Jewish man who's just been executed. Don't write off your enemies. Don't write off your enemies. The power of Jesus and the power of the gospel is so great that even a man in charge of putting Jesus to death may be won over to faith. Why do we as followers of Jesus not kill our enemies? Many reasons, but we take away the chance for our enemy to turn in faith to Jesus because we see through acts of love that even our enemies may be won over to the faith. Do what the centurion does. When you look up at that cross and you see the God-man revealed, give your allegiance where it belongs. Bestow the title of son of God where it belongs on the man who hangs on the cross, who in his great love for us suffered on our behalf and reveals to us a God who suffers alongside us. Let's pray. God, as we move towards Good Friday and we reflect on your crucifixion, Lord, we are overwhelmed. If we take the time to sit with you, Lord Jesus, we struggle to get our minds around that You, our God, would choose to reveal yourself most fully the humiliation and pain of the cross. Thank you, God, for showing us what kind of God you are. You are not a God who who shows his power through might, but shows his power through service and love and suffering and even the cross. Because, God, you have come to us uh, in Christ and suffered through Christ, you, Lord, know what it's like to suffer. I pray, Lord, for the people in our congregation right now who are suffering lord i pray that you our divine brother in distress would come alongside them that even though we don't know what their experience you do comfort them strengthen them give them the strength to hold on